The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. If you have your Bibles, uh, we are going to be 1 Corinthians 8, and uh, I want to talk this morning about freedom and your freedom and your rights. And uh, this is an important conversation for us to be having. Um, And here's the heart of it. Here's what this text is going to actually do in us. Here's what this text is going to bring to the surface. Here's the question. How should we as members of the church, as members together of the church, the community that has been shaped by the gospel, how should we exercise our personal freedoms together in Christ? What does that look like? What does personal freedom and liberty and rights look like in the church? Uh, Here's the reality. We're going to look at this text, and we're going to see some really important questions that are going to kind of bubble, bubble up on us. And, And my hope, my prayer this morning through our time is that we encounter, that we see Jesus Christ this morning, that our hearts are stirred by what he has done for us, his love for us, and then that that fact then drives us to love each other the way Christ has loved us. In in other words, I want to warn you, this is going to be a bit of an old-fashioned gospel sermon this morning. I hope you're okay with that. If not, it's too late, all right? Having said that, let's jump in uh, to the first verse. Now, concerning Food offered to idols. Pause. Show of hands, how many of you this week have struggled with what do you do with food sacrificed to idols? How many are just, it's your struggle. Should I eat it? Should I not eat it? Should I buy it and support it? No. How many have been wondering what to do with these, this food offered to idols? Anyone? No one. I I didn't think so because of that. It is really important that we do some contextual groundwork because if you read a text like this, you could read it and say, ah, it doesn't apply, move on. But when we do a bit of context, what it's going to show us is is the heart of what is is here in this text. I want you to think, consider just two things. Number one, we've said this, we've mentioned this before, but the Corinthian church was a young church. Very young church, uh, under three years old as Paul writes this letter to this church. These were young brothers and sisters in the faith. That's the first thing. The second thing here is I want us to remember the city we're dealing with. This is Corinth. This is a pagan city. It was full of idolatry. Um, We've talked at length over the last month about some of the sexual sin that was happening in the city. It's a pagan city. This is our city. Those are the people that we're talking about. And that paints this picture for what we're dealing with here in this text. And here's what was going on. Um, Corinth, as it practiced its idolatry, as it did these things, the people would come together and they would sacrifice animals. They would sacrifice these animals for a blood sacrifice. Now, we live in a different world, right? PETA would not have approved with this practice. 
But that's what was going on here. And so after all of these sacrifices that were, that were made, they would then have a lot of meat left over. Makes sense. They would have a lot of meat. So what would happen is these families would then take it home. They would feed their families with it if they wanted to. Uh, but more often than not, what they would do is they would then take this leftover meat and they would sell it in the market. Now, keep in mind, eating meat was not as common as it is today. However, eating meat was something, was a luxury that very affluent people engaged in in this, these times. So what, the reason I say that is because this meat that they would then bring to the market had a great chance of making some money for them. They would sell this, and, and I read this week that the majority of the meat that was on the market at this time came from this, from this practice. So this was very common. And here, this church, remember, young church, pagan city, this church is here going, now what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Um, as they thought through this and they wrestled through this together, there were two groups of people that formed. Okay, on one hand, there were some in the church who, who were, were new to the faith. They were new to the church. They were new to leaving this whole idolatrous stuff. And they looked at this practice as absolutely detestable. They just looked at this and they said, it's not that we're vegans, it's that this is our old self. This is who we once were. This was unclean for them. This was evil idolatry that was just right there. That's how they viewed this. And, and these new believers were, were, were seeing what was happening as the church was eating this meat. And they were wondering, like, wait, I thought that we put all that away when we follow Jesus. Like that was who I once was, and yet you're bringing it here. I thought we were done with that, right? So that's on this side. There was another group of people in this church that looked at this differently. There was a group of people who had begun to understand the freedom that is theirs in Christ. They had begun to understand how truly empty these idols were. There were these people who were beginning to understand, wait, through Christ I am free, completely free, and that has no power over me. They were starting to see this, and they started to look at this meat as just that, meat. I'm hungry, that's delicious, I can afford it, freedom in Christ. That's how they were looking at this, it has no power over me, I am free in Christ to eat. So these two groups of people, in this church, colliding over this issue. And Paul here is speaking directly to this issue. And specifically, he is speaking directly to the people, the second group. The second group, the people who, who believe that they have the freedom in Christ to eat the meat that they want to eat. So Paul is speaking directly to those who see nothing wrong with eating this meat. So, back to our text. He says here, verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
If anyone imagines that, that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So here Paul says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. In other words, knowledge is puffing yourself up, building yourself up, and love here is building each other up. Now, before we dive into this a little deeper, let's let Paul kind of open this up for us. Verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. So he's addressing this group within the church who possess that knowledge. We know these idols mean nothing. This idol is not real. There's no real existence. There's no real power. This is metal. This is wood. This is stone. And that is it. It has no power because there is only one true God. We all should just say amen to that. There's only one God. And that statue is not him. And so therefore, we are free. So Paul continues. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That is a wonderful statement here. The, the wonderful, there is one God. So we have to ask as we start into this, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Now, we may not live in a culture who sacrifices animals to statues. Um, we may not... Be in a culture that ritualistically, ritualistically, that's a long one, um, offers these sacrifices to these idols. But don't for a second buy the lie that our culture is free from idolatry. Don't for a second. In fact, I would argue that in some ways our gods are much more dangerous. Because in, in ancient culture, these quote-unquote gods were called gods. They were identified as gods. Our gods are incognito. Our gods disguise themselves and take on different names. Our gods go by names such as work or materialism or safety or security or even family, just to name a few. Our gods go undercover. And idolatry... Here's the definition. It is defined as worshiping and trusting created things rather than the creator. So worshiping, trusting created things rather than the creator. And hear me today, church. Hear me. We live in a culture who excels at providing you many opportunities to do that. We live in a culture who provides you many opportunities to do that. But as followers of Christ, we are defined, we are marked by our belief, as this text says, that there is one God, only one, one Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. We're marked by this. But this speaks to our idolatrous heart. 
And, and we know that all of our, through Christ, we know that all of our idols are powerless. Through Christ, we, we know that we're free from all idols. Through Christ, we know that there is one God. We know this through Christ. In other words, we understand that all of the other quote-unquote gods are stuff. They're just stuff. We understand that. However, verse 7, Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, young church, remember, through former association with idols, eat food as, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Let's look at this closely. There are those in the church, let's just be clear of what we're dealing with here, who, because of their past, new believers, because of their past, because of the bondage that they were once in, cringe at the idea of eating that food. Cringe. In, these, in this church, these new converts had, hadn't had the time or the space to realize the great freedom. They, they hadn't grown in that understanding yet. They hadn't realized all of the powerful implications that the gospel has on our lives. They weren't able to distinguish between the pagan idol worship and Christians eating meat. Understand here, these were new believers it wasn't that they had any moralistic preference toward eating or not eating, but these people would have been tempted to fall back into what once was. These people would have been tempted to their old self, their old ways, their pre-Christ life was now being brought on display in front of them. And I want you to notice something. Paul is not condemning them. Paul here is not saying, hey, um, you immature believers need to know more. You need to get over this. He's not clubbing new believers over the head here. Instead, he is addressing those more mature believers around them. He's addressing them because more maturity in the Lord should play out with more love for each other. Let me say it like this. He does not say, hey, new believers, know more. He says, hey, mature believers, love more. It's a, we have to see this. Paul believes that, that as we know more, as we mature in the faith, that it will lead us to love more. So he speaks to this, and he calls for the more mature to step in. And here's what he, what he says. Here's his instruction. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. In other words, this had nothing to do with food. This has nothing to do. It's not about the food. It's much deeper than that. Listen to this in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in, idols, in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? 
And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Do you follow Paul's argument here? Do you, do you see, Paul says, if you who possess this knowledge that, that of the freedom of Christ, you who possess this knowledge that those idols are nothing more than wood and stone and, and whatever, if you go in and if you eat this food and those in the body of Christ, those in the church who are newer in the faith, wrestling with this still, those who do not have this understanding, and more importantly, don't miss this, those who have a personal conviction not to eat, and they see you, what if they see you, and by, by seeing you eat, by seeing you engage in this stuff, it leads them to do the same. And it leads them back into the sin, back against their conviction. It leads them back into the life that they were called out of. Is it worth it? Is that chicken kebab worth it? I mean, let's be honest. That's what's on display here. Is that worth it? Is your freedom to eat that worth the cost? Here's, here is the question. What if you celebrating your freedom now leads a brother back into bondage? Is that worth it? Is it worth it? Paul is calling us to look beyond our rights. And he's going to make a big statement here, verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Big statement. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. When we use our freedoms in a way that wounds a brother, wounds a sister, when we use our freedoms in a way that leads a brother and sister into sin, Paul makes it very clear, you are not just sinning against your brother. You are sinning against Christ himself. In other words, church, to use your Christian freedoms inappropriately, to use your Christian freedoms in a way that harms the bride is a sin against Christ. And this is huge. But right now, this raises all kinds of questions in our minds. We all know that we live in a highly individualistic society. I mean, highly individualistic. We value personal autonomy. It's one of the cornerstones of American culture. It, that, that for the most part, we struggle with the idea of community, especially when it interferes with personal autonomy and individualism. And, and by the way, this is a totally different sermon, but this is one of the reasons that the church, the true church, is so important for our world today, as we cry out for, anyway, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but from this highly individualistic perspective that we bring to the table, all right, from this, um, there's this belief in the church that sounds something like this. 
The individual has the right to do anything at all that he would like to do as a free person, as an autonomous individual, just as long as another human being is not endangered or harmed by his actions. It feels good, right? That, that feels right. That right there, I mean, that feels right. If, if you want to eat and it doesn't hurt someone, it doesn't matter how the other person feels about it. Like, I mean, this is my life. This is my decision. I mean, if it doesn't hurt them without being rude, they need to get over that. This is what our culture conditions us to bring to community. They don't have the right to tell me what I can and what I cannot eat. And although that is acceptable, perfectly acceptable in our culture, in our community, That is not what the Bible lays out for his church. That is not the picture of gospel community. That's not it. Because you know what's missing? Here's what's missing. The purpose of your freedoms. What's missing in this is love. Uh, I want you to consider this for a second. Uh, So... So Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples. And notice that he doesn't say that they're going to know this because of how free we are. He doesn't say that they're going to know this because of how wonderfully free and liberated that we are. I mean, praise God that there's freedom in Christ. We know that. There's no bondage. We get that. But that's not how the world's going to know we're his. The world's not going to know that we're his because of our freedom, as amazing as that is. The world is going to know that we are the community of God, that we are God's people, his disciples. The world is going to know that because the love that we have for one another. That's how they're going to know. And and here's what we're seeing here as, as we look at 1 Corinthians 8 we see a group of people who were pressing their rights and their freedoms because they understood that they were free. But they were pushing that. They understood it. They were exercising their freedoms and exercising their rights while all the time forgetting love. Forgetting that the chief marking of the gospel in our lives is the love that we have for one another. Uh, Forgetting the simple command that Jesus gave us to love God and love each other. Forgetting that. They were were exercising their rights without noticing or without caring the impact that it was going to have on the people around them, on the community around them. Your personal freedoms are never simply personal. I want to, I'll say it like this. Your, Your freedoms are personal, but they are never private. They're personal, but they're never private. So our individualism might tempt us to think that your actions, your freedoms, aren't going to impact those in your life, Um, the community around you. But church, we know that to be naive. From both our experience and scripture, you do not exercise your personal freedoms in a vacuum. We we know that your freedoms are personal, but they're not private and, and Do you know why that's true? 
Because your walk with Jesus is personal, but it is never private. It's personal, but it is never private. This is not a me, myself, and I, and tack Jesus on at the end, and I'm good to go. That's not the picture that our Bible paints. See, the gospel changes an individual. Amen for this. But then the gospel calls that individual into a community. And then, by the way, the gospel is transforming that community together. This is not an optional deal. You can't take part one and say, forget the bride. I just want Jesus. You are the bride. He he changes an individual. He places them into a community, and then he shapes that community for his glory, and then he calls that community church. That is a beautiful picture, and to miss or to ignore the communal aspect of the gospel is to misunderstand the church and to miss the beauty of the gospel itself. Um, I think it's a bit like the difference between listening to an incredible symphony on an AM radio versus being in a hall. Like, you're going to hear the same notes, You're going to hear the same rises and the same falls in that melody. But don't you for a second tell me that that experience is the same. Don't for a second tell me that leaving that hall, you're not going to leave with a much more full and robust experience of what just happened. Our experience with the gospel of Christ is a bit like that. I mean, me, myself, and I can experience the goodness of Christ on a personal level. And I am so thankful for that. I think most of us get that. Being American, an individual, we get that. We praise God that the gospel is personal. But oh, have you seen? Oh, have you felt? The gospel express itself in community. That right there is a symphony hall. It is full, it is robust, and it is refined. Here's the reality. To put this really simple, a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper understanding of scripture, a deeper understanding of Christ will drive us to a deeper love for God and each other. This is the way that the gospel shapes community. This is the way that the gospel shapes community. Knowledge without love will only puff up. When love builds up, and that's what Paul is calling us to do. Now, um, this is really theoretical, and I want for a second to get really practical, because I, I want you to just put yourself in the shoes of the people that Paul is addressing. Uh, let's just say you're growing in your faith, you begin to understand that you have freedom in Christ, and it's awesome, yes, like you get it, right? And, and you're, you're wanting to walk in that freedom. You're in a community full of people from all different backgrounds. And then there's this wing of people that are offended by something that you have every right to do. All right, that's, that's, that's them. Is Paul really telling you to walk on eggshells? Is Paul really telling you to tiptoe around everything so as not to offend everyone else? That sounds miserable. Is that what Paul is, is that what it means to live in community? 
Remember, I warned you that this was going to be a simple gospel message, simple gospel sermon this morning. Um, Let's look at something together. I want you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians, and I want you to turn with me um, to the right a few books to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. What we're about to read here in, in, in considering what we just read in 1 Corinthians 8, what we're about to read here changes everything. It changes, it completely challenged and changed my perspective this week. And before I read this, I just want, just take this in. If you have a pen, write this down, snap a picture. Listen to this. Every right and freedom that you have in Christ, every single one of them, every right, every freedom you have in Christ is the direct result of Christ giving up his rights on your behalf. Every single right that you have is a direct result of someone else giving up their rights for you. Just take that in. Your freedom Every freedom that you have and enjoy is because your Savior laid down his freedom for you. With that in your mind, listen to how Paul reveals this in Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's community here, right? Love, you hear it all throughout this text. Listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, listen, take this in, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is exactly what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. Count others more significant than yourself, but how do you expect us to do that, Paul? I mean, practically, right? It's the same thing he's calling the Corinthians to, but how? Well, listen to this. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me say it again. Every single right and freedom that you have and enjoy in Christ is yours as a direct result of Jesus Christ laying down his rights for you, every single one. This wrecked me this week. It, it, Jesus had every right to look down and say, nope, I'm remaining on my throne in heaven. That's my right. Jesus had every right to say, I am God. They are dirty. They are broken. And that's on them. I am God, and and they are going to get what's coming. Jesus had every right to to look at all. He says, I created, all of this was created through me. I have every right 
to get what I deserve in my perfection in heaven. This is my right. But he stepped down. He stepped down, and the text says he emptied himself. Now, for anyone here who is familiar with this incredible verse, I want to ask you a question. What did he empty himself of? What is it that Jesus Christ here, who emptied himself for you, what did he empty himself of? Did he stop being God? No. Did he give up his godness? No. Did he empty himself of any of that? The answer is no. Church, Jesus emptied himself, not of his godness, but of his rights. Jesus emptied himself of what was rightfully his. That's what Jesus emptied himself of. In order to demonstrate the perfect love toward you, in order that you may know and experience freedom and forgiveness in him, salvation in him. Let me read this to you again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our Savior. That is Jesus. Our gospel is the true story about our Savior emptying himself for you. That is is the gospel. We stand free because he was condemned. That is the gospel. This is the heart of everything that we hold to be true as his people. And now Paul gives this incredible command after that. Have that mind. Follow that lead. See what he just did there? Do that. Follow him. Jesus Christ was the only human being to ever be who, had, who was fully justified in being entitled. He was the only person who was fully just, justified in being entitled, and yet he gave up his rights for us. And now Paul says, knowing that, can you now look at your brother with entitlement? Can you now look at a brother who is offended by your right? Can you now look at him and tell him through your words or through your actions? Can you tell him, look, I love my rights more than I love you. I love my rights more than I love you. No, we can't do that because praise God, that wasn't the mind that Christ took to me and took to you. Praise God, that wasn't what he did. Instead, he emptied himself for you. Looking back at our text this morning, it is not and was never about the meat. It is not and was never about any one specific freedom. 
It is about loving your brother more than your rights. It's about loving each other more than our freedoms. It's about looking at each other with the compassion that Christ looked at us with and and saying, Christ, you gave yourself for me, now I will give myself for them. Christ emptied himself for me, and I will empty myself for them because their soul is more important than any chicken kebab. I don't care how good it is. Their soul is more important. I love my brother and I love my sister more than any of my freedoms or right, and I would give it all up for them because Christ gave it all up for me. That is a gospel community. That is the church. That God so loved you, he sent his one and only son, and Jesus demonstrated that love perfectly and completely through his death on the cross on your behalf. He had every right to say no. He had every right to leave you in your sin. He would have been right But he emptied himself of that right for you. And, and he came and he gave himself so that you are now free, so that you are now forgiven, and so that you may now know the love of God. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. God loves you, and Christ demonstrated that for you and secured that forever for you through his work on the cross on your behalf. Now, in response to that, to use Paul's language, let's have that mind. Let's have that mind together. Let's follow his lead. Let's be ready to empty ourselves out for each other because, church, we are a collection of people that have been transformed by the gospel, called together, and now shaped together by the gospel. That is who we are. And I want you to understand, as we close, God's ways for the church are not the world's ways. God's ways for the church are not the world's ways. We are a called out and we are a set apart people. In a world that says, get yours, the gospel says, give yours. In a world that says, look out for me, myself, and I, the gospel comes along and says, count others as more significant than yourself. In a world that celebrates personal rights and freedoms and personal autonomy and choices, the gospel celebrates the ultimate freedom that we have, celebrates that. But a freedom that's not selfish or personal but a true freedom that we would empty ourselves for each other, that we may love God and love others. Let me say it one more time. Every right and freedom you have in Christ is the direct result of Christ giving up his rights on your behalf. So now let us put down our entitlements. Let's just lay that stuff down and let us together as the church follow the lead of our Savior. Let me pray for us. God, we just 
stop and realize the power of the gospel. Lord, if we truly and we believed what it is that we say we believe, that you so loved us that you sent your son for us and that your incredible and perfect love for us was demonstrated through his work while we were still dead in our sin. When we believe that, that you sent your son who then emptied himself out for us, giving us all that we know and celebrate today, when we get that, Lord... That changes a person. That is freedom. That is true freedom. And God, we thank you. We thank you for that work in our life. But Lord, help it not to terminate with us. Help us not to think that we can just sit and soak in that personal reality. But Lord, help us to understand that we have been reconciled to now be about your work of reconciliation in our community. Help us to realize that we've been given grace so that we may bear your image and show that grace to each other. Help us to be a people who point people to you because of our love. God, in a community, in a culture that is so used to seeing hate on display, help your church, your people, the ones who have been saved to be a light, a light. God, and let us follow your lead. Let us excel at loving each other well for your glory. And would you give us the strength and the power to do that like you promised you would? in your son's name that we pray. Amen.